Well, welcome this morning. We're excited to share and to uh, think about and to worship our Lord and the day that he uh, rose again on the first day of the week. And uh, uh, what a blessing it is to serve him and to love him in response to the great love that he's shown us. Amen? Well, listen, anybody here born in the 50s? Anybody here born in the 60s? I'm 60s. Anybody prior to the 50s? Okay, well, that's okay. Okay, no problem. Who's 70s? Raise your hand if you're a 70s baby. There we go. 80s, 90s. I don't even want to go to the next one. <laughs> well, listen, if you've been uh, in our era through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, uh, one thing that is certainly marked uh, those eras is that there has been a struggle and a fight and a, um, uh, a, a, a going for peace. People are looking for peace. I mean, just look at the 60s. Uh, you know, as we uh, survey the civil rights movement uh, and uh, all that wonderful, if I can say it that way, struggle and the way in which people uh, stood up for what was right and what was godly, praise God. But, you know, as we move through the 60s and the Vietnam War and the distrust with government and all that sort of thing, uh, John Lennon's song that he wrote in 1969 sort of uh, memorialized or signi signified what the 60s were all about. Give peace a chance. Give peace a chance because people were searching for peace and longing for peace. And uh, even now, as we've moved through the 70s and Watergate and the uh, high inflation and uncertain times and the 80s and the Cold War, of course, the Cold War between the United States and Russia or the, or the Soviet Union, I mean, people searching for peace. And, he, and when we get into our times, I mean, we, we look around and we see uh, nuclear bombs going off in the, in the east, uh, underwater, and uh, test sites, and people are, or nations are flexing their muscles against one another, and balloons are flying that uh, send data back, and probably our balloons are somewhere, but whatever. Uh, you know, you look and you read the news and you go, wow. Where is the peace? And people look for peace that way on a national scale, but really, uh, that's just a, uh, a symptom. The national unrest is sort of just a symptom of what's going on in unredeemed men and women, boys and girls' hearts. I mean, all you have to do is turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, you don't have to do that. I'll do it for you. But uh, uh, here King Solomon uh, uh, nails it. I mean, here he is, and he looks through all the different things that humans pour themselves into. They pour themselves into work. And Solomon gets to the end and says, wow, that's vanity. Now, work is good and can be a worshipful experience, but... When done and made an idol, work can be a real drag and can be uh, something that doesn't give a lot of peace. He looks to wine, women, and song. You know the story. And uh, he, he, he proclaims that all of that is vanity. But you know, he talks about searching after wisdom, knowledge, apart from God. 
And he came to the place where he said, wow, that is vanity. And there's more things. There's several things that he talks about in the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, one of the things that he comes to the conclusion about is in Ecclesiastes 9.3. You don't have to turn there. Uh, I'll read it to you. He comes to this conclusion. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That's earthly wisdom. All that is done under the sun. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that one thing happens to all. Listen to this. Truly, he says, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. What a description of what life is like outside of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And what I would uh, argue is that the reason there's national unrest is because there's personal unrest in people's hearts. People are anxious. People are fearful. People are unsettled. There's this unsettledness deep in the hearts of people that cause lots of these things. Uh, Jeremiah actually said, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things. Not only deceitful, folks, it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, so we see in the Bible that the Bible teaches outside of Christ, we have an evil, unsettled, anxious, fearful, uncertain heart. And if we've been living now through what we just went through for the last three years, you talk about uncertainty and unsettledness and anxiousness and fear on world display. It only took about three days for it to happen. I can remember three days before the shutdown. We were all scheduled to go to Israel. And one young lady who is going on the trip with us texted me and said, are we still going to Israel three days before? And I sort of put, ha, 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 what are you talking about? Of course we're going to Israel. But as you know, the entire world shut down in almost the matter of just about a week and people couldn't understand what were going on, and they had questions, and they were uncertain, and they were scared. And all the while, here we are, sometimes fighting as Christians. Shame on us. When we have the answer of all answers. And that answer is Jesus Christ and his resurrection. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ settles everything. There's nothing it doesn't settle for the life of the believer. And you can talk about that when you go home and eat your Easter dinner. What is it that does, isn't settled at the cross? Well, everything is settled at the cross. And so uh, I appreciate uh, Diana here coming and reading to us one of the gospel accounts. One. You get that? That was one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. You understand that there are four gospels. And what's funny about the gospels is you can't read everything that happened about the resurrection in just one gospel. You need to put them all together. And that's great 
if, if you're a lawyer, who here is a lawyer? Put your hand up. Ah, uh, we got a lawyer up here. He, he's probably billing you as we speak. <laughs> if you're a lawyer or a judge or a juror or somebody in the legal system, for you to know that the eyewitness accounts aren't exactly the same should make you jump up and down. Because if they were exactly the same, you would know that those accounts were contrived. So here you go, you find different bits and pieces of the resurrection in all of the Gospels. Now, every year I read this, so I'm going, if you're a regular and you've been here, uh, just bear with me. Uh, from Halley's Bible Commentary, he gives the order of events on the resurrection morning. I'm just going to sort of go through it with you, okay with you? Uh, and he, he uh, comments here that it's not easy to harmonize all the records, but you really got to study all four Gospels to, co uh, to put it into some form of, of connected, consecutive story. Now, I always quote this proverb, so it's the glory of the king to search out a matter. That's what the Proverbs say. Don't be alarmed that it's not in bullet points for our American mind. I think what the Lord is calling us to do is to really dig in. He likes that. So you go and you find it in the different uh, 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 Gospels, uh, the order. Here's a way in which you can reconcile all the different Gospels. You ready for this? At very first break of dawn, two or more groups of women. Don't you love it? You'd never, if you were writing at the time, now listen, everywhere the Gospel's been, everywhere. Don't let the media and the world tell you different. The gospel has elevated women, not suppressed them or been inappropriate towards them. The gospel always elevates women. But at the time that this was writing or written, women couldn't testify in court. So if you were trying to contrive the gospels, the first thing you would do is not right that women found the tomb, found Jesus or the tomb empty. You would never do that, which is one great reason to believe that the eyewitness account is true. You'd never write this because they were writing what really happened. But anyway, at the first break of dawn, two or more groups of women from the places where they were staying in Jerusalem or Bethany, which is very close, start groping their way or start going toward the tomb in the early morning. It's about this time that Jesus emerges from the tomb accompanied by angels who roll away the stone. What a great picture of what the stone is like. It rolls this way. When I was reading this when I was a kid, I thought, what do you, got a big boulder and you got to get it, you know, roll it towards yourself or something? But no, these things are in channels and you can see it when you go to Israel that roll up and down on these tracks that they made so that the stone is rolled like this. So they rolled away the stone. And uh, neatly folds the shroud. And then the guards, frightened and dazed, go to tell the priests who had placed them there, placed the guard there. And about sunrise, as the women approached the tomb, Mary Magdalene, ahead of her group, seeing the tomb empty, but not seeing the angel, uh, not hear, uh, nor hearing his announcement that Jesus has risen, turn and runs to tell Peter and John. I love it. Mary Magdalene. I mean, Oh, 
her heart, all that she's being saved from and unto, had this privilege of seeing an empty tomb and going back and telling the apostles. Well, by uh, uh, the other women then come closer, see and hear the angels, and hurry, hurry away by another route to tell the main group of disciples. And by this time, Peter and John reach the tomb and go in. That's a funny one, though. That's where a place where the Bible's really funny, right? Because John says he went faster than Peter. It's hysterical. That they must have been from our family. But anyway. <clears throat> They see the empty shroud and they leave, John believing, but Peter wandering. Mary Magdalene, in the meantime, follows hard after Peter and John, returns to the tomb, remains alone, and weeps. Then she sees the angels, and Jesus himself appears to her. Shortly thereafter, Jesus appears to the other women as they're on their way to tell their disciples, or as having told the disciples, they're returning to the tomb. This all happened probably in less than an hour's time. So we've read the account of the gospel, and let's just try to make some sense of what the resurrection means. Why do Christians get all excited about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, I know I'm not supposed to do this. I have one niece She's probably listening now. She hates when I flip around. But I'm not organized enough to put it up there, so let's just flip around. Colossians 1.20. Let's make some sense of the resurrection. On Good Friday at our service, we tried to make some sense of the death, the crucifixion of Jesus. Now let's make some sense of the resurrection of Jesus. Here's one place that you can go. I'm actually going to start in verse 19 of Colossians chapter 1. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Here it comes. You ready? And by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, watch this, watch this. I, I just have to say, in this era of Christianity, American Christianity, nobody wants to talk about this. They want to talk about the peace, but not necessarily what that means about us. Because here it says that having made peace, how? Through the blood of his cross. Keep going, verse 21, not me saying it, it's Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Watch this. And you, now I'm not going to do this because it would be rude, but I'm going to do it. But point at me first. <laughs> or just point at yourself. You, who once were alienated, listen to this, and enemies... In other places in the gospel, or excuse me, in the Bible, in Romans 8, in Ephesians 2, we might take a look at it here in a minute, there is writings by Paul that say when you're outside of Christ, listen to this, when you're outside of Christ, you're at enmity. Sounds like enemy, doesn't it? You're at enmity with God. 
And enmity means hostility. In other words, because of the fall, the rebellion in the garden, if you eat of this fruit, this tree that I told you not to, God said, you will surely die. Because of that fall, and in Romans, which we're going to read here in a minute, Paul tells us that through one man, Adam, sin spread to all of us. In other words, we were outside of Christ, and if you sit here today, I got some bad news for you today if you don't know if you're going to heaven and have eternal life. The bad news is you and we were previously at war with God. At war. You were an enemy. The wrath of God was upon your life. You were a child of wrath. If you're outside of Christ, you are a child of wrath. What does that mean? It means that God is going to be perfectly fair. Instead of Jesus taking the wrath against your sin, you will. It says, having made peace through the blood of his Christ, you're alienated and an enemy. And by the way, some people might say, well, wait a minute, how fair is it that I got a sin nature that you just told me about in Romans 5? Look down here in Colossians 1, verse 21. You're not only a sinner by nature, you're a sinner by deed. So am I. <laughs> I'm the chief sinner. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind, how? By wicked works. So Romans 5 tells us that you have a sin nature, other places as well. Colossians 1, right there where I read, said you are a sinner because you sin also. So it's not just that you have a sin nature. You're a sinner, well, listen to this, by nature and by deed. Everybody tracking with me. So let's examine something. We've been going through the book of Acts. And I'm going to take you over here and read to you something that we studied last week and we looked at last week. Track with me now. If you get over to verse 34, Peter now is preaching a sermon to a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a like a staff sergeant in the Roman military. He is an important guy. But notice, he's a Gentile. He's not Jewish, Cornelius isn't. And Peter is given a sermon right in his house. How cool would that be? Wouldn't you love to have Peter come to your house and give a sermon? And Peter, look at this in verse 34, opens his mouth. That cracks me up because Peter often opened his mouth. But now God is using that open mouth for his good and glory. But here Peter opens his mouth and says this. We read it last week. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. They're talking about, well, can I be a Christian if I'm a not Jewish? Can I be a Christian if I'm Jewish? Can I be a Christian if I'm not Jewish? And God, Peter is saying, wait, wait, wait. There's no partiality in Christ. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. 
Now watch, here's the verse I want us to focus on. Ready? The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Now what he's saying there was, this message, preaching peace, went to the Jew first, watch, but now is coming to the Gentile. And I want you, time out, rabbit trail. I want you, over the next week, if you want to do an amazing devotion, you just read through the Gospels and see how often Jesus and the apostles, and then in Acts, how many times they speak about peace. You know why? Because you're thinking peace, maybe, or maybe, maybe not, but a lot of people in the world are thinking peace like John Lennon. Peace. Can't we just get along? Let's just have peace. Let's just go to a commune, do whatever we do with whomever we do it, and love one another and not make waves, and that'll make peace. And we tried that, and it failed miserably because there is no peace. And you know why? Because there's no peace among men and women until there's peace with God in the individual hearts of people. And what he's talking about here is that peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now listen to me, another rabbit trail. We're going to talk about two types of peace here today. Peace with God first. And then at the end, we're going to have talk about the peace that you and I all want. That peace that keeps us calm and no anxiety. We'll talk about that second. If I don't talk about it, raise your hand and we'll go another hour and we'll do that. Joking. But here, Peter now talks about preaching peace. Now let me prove something to you. This must have been a great theme among the apostles. Watch this. Just, just think about this for a minute. Think about what the apostles knew. Hebrews 13 says God is the God of peace. You ever, everybody with me? Ephesians 2.14 says Jesus is our peace. It's, it, there's not some Susie Orman paradigm to get you to peace. If I live my life this way, that way, this way, that way, there will be peace. No, that type of peace you sell on late night TV. This actually tells us in Ephesians 2.14, and this is true, and this is what everyone is searching for, and Ecclesiastes sort of shows us this unsettled heart. Jesus is our peace. It's not some program that you do. It's a person that lives Ephesians 2.14. Now let me read you some other things. I'm just sort of picking them out of the air. (laughs) Not really. Don't you love Christmas? You love it. Come on, you love it. You love the candlelight services and the lights and the hymns and the carols. But I want you to just remember something that we read every Christmas. Isaiah 9.6. For unto us a child is born. It's all familiar to you. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Not at his first coming, at his second coming, government will be on his shoulders. Everybody there? 
Watch this. And his name will be called, by the way, there's a comma after wonderful. He'll be called wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And now say it with me, prince of peace. And did you ever wonder when the angels appeared over Bethlehem and they were talking to the shepherds who were watching their flock by night? I'm going to bring you glad tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people for unto you and this city of David, a savior, which is born is Christ the Lord. And then remember what they sang? You love it. Christmas, you love it. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Goodwill towards men. Now listen, almost every commentator that knows anything is telling us that when those angels are saying that, we have, Hallmark and all of us have manipulated that because that's not necessarily talking about you and I having peace this way. That's talking about that the one who is coming is here to solve the peace problem between God and man. That's the peace of God he's talking about. Yet there's really a problem. There's a big problem. Remember Jeremiah in a couple places when Jeremiah was saying judgment is on the way for exile. Remember this. Jeremiah said this, the people will say peace, peace. But there is no peace. Jeremiah said that. Uh, Isaiah 48 and in Isaiah 57 tells us why there is no peace. I sort of read it to you earlier when I talked about Ecclesiastes and Jeremiah. But in Isaiah 48 and also in Isaiah 57, it says that there is no peace with the wicked. And you say to yourself, well, I don't consider myself wicked. Well, the Bible says differently. The Bible doesn't teach that we're all basically good. As I read earlier, the Bible says that we're all sinners, enemies at war with God. You get it? So why is there no peace? Is because we are wicked. Listen to this. Now here's a key verse. I want you to hear this. I know I'm jumping around, but just listen. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says... In answer to why there's no peace, listen to this, but your iniquities, that means sin, your sin, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sounds like enmity to me. Do you get it? There's enmity between God and those outside of Christ. There's a hostility that we have shown in rebellion. Now, you might be tempted to say to yourself, I'm not wicked. I'm not that bad. But the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in fact, in Ecclesiastes, and you can see it today, you see it everywhere today, people try to live a good moral life. Watch this. Hold on. Watch. And God says, that's not enough. And how do I know it? 
Here's how I know it. I want you to go back to Acts chapter 10. I want you to start in the first of the chapter. We're saying, we're, we, listen, some of us here go, when I read these scriptures about separation from God and wickedness and iniquity, we're thinking in our hearts, you don't know the half of it, brother. I'm worse than even that. But some of us are sitting here and going, I don't care what the guy says. By the way, I'm not saying it. The Bible is. I don't care what the guy says. I'm a pretty good person. And I want you to see that that's not enough because in chapter 10, listen to this. We read it last week, verse one. There's a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. He's the centurion, that person in the military of the Italian regiment. Now I want you to see something. Just count with me. A devout man. A man who feared God with all of his household. A man who gave money, that's what alms mean, generously to the people. Watch, a man who prayed. Boom. And God could have left him alone, but he didn't. He sent Peter to go preach to his household. Why? What did God know? God knew without faith, it's impossible to please him. The Bible tells us, and he also knew that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that God, he is a God of justice and sin must be punished. If you failed that much, that much, who here has failed that much? Nobody. We've all, oh, you're good. But we failed like gazillion times more. James tells us if you failed this much in the law, you failed. Can you imagine having a wooden boat and you're just, you're going to go out on the lake and you got your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you're just, what a great day for a picnic. And uh, she looks down and she says, I noticed there's a hundred planks down there, but one of them's broken and I can see the water. And you say, ah, it's good enough. We'll make it. Jump in, honey. See, that's what many of us think our life is like. We have 99 planks and just one's cracked. And the Bible says, even if one's cracked, you're going to sink. Why? Because remember in the Sermon on the Mount or just about in that area, somebody is asking Jesus, remember this? Lord, uh, how perfect do you have to be to get to heaven? And the Lord says, oh, that's an easy one. He didn't say that. I put that in there. You have to be as perfect as your Father in heaven. Now, when you hear that, what do you think? There's no way. And that's the point. You and I and we need a Savior. Cornelius, who gave money, who came to the prayer meeting, who had a beautiful family, who was very well educated, who had a good job, just like many people think, I'm a good citizen I'm just doing religious stuff. And Jesus says, send Peter. He's delusional. <laughs> In the sense that the enemy has fooled us into thinking we can just do some good things and that's enough. And here, watch. 
Peter, Peter is sent to Cornelius, I read it to you, to preach peace through Jesus Christ. And what I would say to all of us is that we must have peace with God before we can have the peace of God. Turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Did I go there already? Well, anyway, go there. (laughs) Now, who wrote Ephesians? Anybody know? Paul wrote Ephesians. Who is uh, the two main characters in the back half or the second half of Acts? Who are the two main characters? Peter and Paul. Anyway, I had a sort of a joke, but it wouldn't have gone bad. And here's what I want to read to you, starting in verse 14, chapter 2, the book of Ephesians. For he himself is our peace. See, it's everywhere in the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. Why? Because there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of light. And when you go through the Gospels, listen, folks, Jesus tells his disciples, and he tells us in Acts, that the kingdom of God is near. What is the kingdom of God going to look like? Isaiah 35 tells us lame people are going to walk. People who can't hear are going to hear. People who can't talk are going to talk. You know that? And you go through the Gospels, and you see Jesus healing all of these people, and you say to yourself, why does he just heal one or two and he doesn't heal everybody? Anybody ever ask that question? Well, the reason is, is because Jesus in his first coming is announcing to everybody who's watching, listen, we're at war. Men and women are at war with the kingdom of God. And I have come to bring people out of the kingdom of darkness and put them into the kingdom of God. And one day I'm going to come back and set all things right and everybody's going to be healed. You get it? which means he's our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh, now back in Ephesians 2, the enmity, there it is, enmity, hostility. Raise your hand if you know what an enmity means now. Hostility. That is the law of commandments contained in his ordinances, so to create in himself one new man from the two. Thus, watch this, making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. How does he do it? How does he reconcile people through the cross? Thereby putting to death, look at this, the hostility. And he came and preached, here it comes again, the same phrase. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off. Do you know outside of Christ... Doesn't it matter? You can be Cornelius, good moral person, pray, give money, da-da-da-da, but haven't trusted in Christ, you're still just afar off. And you were far off unto those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. In other words, this guy, Paul, watch, preached peace. Everywhere he went, 
In fact, let me show you something in the book of Acts. I know, I'm flipping, I know. Look over in Acts chapter 4. I want you to see, as we study through the book of Acts, what were the apostles doing on a daily basis? You see it uh, up there at the end or right before this, or excuse me, right after this. But, but whatever, here in verse 32, you also see in verse 33. Watch this. Actually, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Do you understand in the early church, folks, folks, listen. In the early, we, we do it once a year. In the early church, When these guys and gals woke up and their feet hit the floor and they had their devotions and they ate their breakfast, they were marching out the door to talk about one thing, the resurrection of Christ. Because the resurrection tells us a lot of things. Christ is who he said he is. The son of man and the son of God. The only one who could bridge between man and God, the only one ever who was even able, the one who fulfilled the law and took the sting out of the curse of the law, which is death. This one, Jesus, do you know what he was doing on the cross? He was settling the war. And here, I got news for you. He won. He won. He, the resurrection, it proves that he has the power over life and death. He call, claimed to be the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father, remember, through Christ. Remember that? He claimed to be the Son of Man, Son of God. References to the Daniel 9 passages about the, uh, the Messiah. So, in other words, he fulfilled the prophecies. Many. He proved that he had power. He proved that he is who he said he is. But watch, he also made peace, we read it, through the blood. Ephesians 1, verse 7 tells us redemption came through the death and then the resurrection. He gives us, watch, new life, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Don't just blow by it and yawn about this one. He doesn't take a person who submits their life to Christ and sort of fashion them into a new moral being. Like, I'm going to take uh, Tim and just make him better. That's not what the Lord says. The Lord says, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his raising to new life, you now get new life. Not old life made better, you get new life. It's amazing. So, Peace, peace with God. Before we can have peace of God, we need to have peace with God. Turn with me to the fifth chapter of Romans. It's so simple, even I can understand it. What? What am I talking about? (laughs) It's all throughout the Bible, folks. Therefore... 
Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have, look at this, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever, listen, listen, listen. Whatever Paul was talking about prior to chapter 5 of Romans, and the reason I'm saying that is because he goes, therefore, Whatever that is, we now can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember how I started this sermon or teaching? I said that people are unsettled. My uh, uh, theory, and I think it's true, is that people are more nervous, anxious, fearful, afraid, seeking peace now more than ever in the world. And you saw it through, or ever at a time in the world, sorry, Lily, and every time, uh, that Lily, but anyway, every time you go through the 60s and the 70s and you see all that uneasiness and the 80s stock market and the Cold War and people, were, and then COVID, And the Bible tells us right here how we can settle our hearts. And the first thing is, watch, that he says, is that your sins and my sins must be forgiven. What do you mean? Go back to the last verse of chapter 4. Folks, do you know this? Chapter 1 and 2 of uh, Romans is an exposition on why the entire world is guilty before God. Jew and Gentile. Whether you've outlined, been outlined the gospel or not, things have been put on your consciousness. You, you have been, all of us have been indicted by God. That's what chapter 1 and chapter 2 says. And then chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Romans is so beautiful. It talks about how you can't earn your salvation and how you receive when you trust Christ, listen to this, the righteousness of Christ, so that when you remember Jesus saying, how perfect do you have to be, or answering the question, how perfect do you have to be? You have to be perfect to get into heaven. You understand that we receive his righteousness so that when Christ, or when we go to heaven, God looks at us as though we had never sinned and that we were perfectly righteous. Woe. Watch this. Last verse. Who, listen, talking about Jesus, who was delivered up, that's put to the cross, because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. You understand that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want you to just listen, listen, hang in there for a minute. When you see these big words in the Bible, when you start to unlock what they mean, it just brings all of it into focus and you start to have this an amazing heart of gratitude and here's what justification means. God makes a judicial decree, a spiritual judicial decree. You ever been in court? Well, I have. And you ever seen the, you ever been on seen TV and you see the judge put the gavel down? Boom, what does the judge do? He makes a decree sometimes. And sometimes there are arguments and then the judge makes a decree. But sometimes the judge just makes a decree. You get me? It's a judicial decree. We're going to abide by that decree 
And it's really not dependent upon you. It's what I, if I was the judge, ruled. This word justification should be thought of in that sense. In other words, watch. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gavel of God comes down and says to anyone who trusts in him, Jan, you're justified. That means, listen, listen. The Lord has made a judicial decree that he, by the blood of Jesus Christ, will count Jan just as if he, she never sinned. It's a judicial decree. In order to have peace with God, look at this, we must be justified. How? Well, here's how Americans do it. You know, if I give enough money back there, hmm, maybe I'll make it. If I help some people across the street and be nice and do all those sorts of things and wear a smile, maybe I'll make it. If I don't cuss this year, I'm in. I mean, this is the sort of thing we think about. If I serve on some committees, yes, I'll be there. Watch this. This whole section does away with any of that. This says that you are justified, declared not guilty, just as if you never sinned. How? It tells you, by faith, you just trust in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for your whole spiritual being, all of your spiritual life. You're just trusting in Christ. Watch this. The Lord comes down with the gavel in your spiritual life and says, not guilty. And not only that, but chapter 3 and chapter 4 tells us he not only declares you not guilty, he puts into your spiritual bank account his righteousness. So when you go to meet him, you're not guilty and you're clothed in the robes of righteousness. Now, how much of that did you do? Did I do? Nothing. We just receive what he's already done. Everybody with me? So having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, watch this, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character Hope. Hope. Now, hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. All right, I've jumped around. Now I'm going to try to come to the point. Folks, if you're sitting here today and you, if I asked you the question, are you going to heaven? Do you have eternal life? And if you said something like this, ah, I don't know. Well, you're counting on the wrong thing. You're counting on how well you do or how good you are. And the Bible just, I just read it to you. The Bible tells you that there's no room for that. That the only way that you can have peace with God, be brought back of enemy territory and into the kingdom of God, peace. Hostility has ceased. Out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of heaven. The only way hostility ceases is when you have faith and trust in all that Christ has done. It's just that. Listen, 
It's like this. You know what the Lord asks us to do? Here's, in a sense, here's what the Lord asks you to do. He asks you and me, watch, to take our weapons that we use, pride, anger, manipulation, power, intellect. Now, he never calls you to be a dumb person, but when you trust in all those things, pride, power, intellect that you use as weapons in this life, watch, he asks you to lay them down. Repent and go towards God in faith. And when you do that, boom, you've been justified. What happens? Lots of things happen. The Holy Spirit comes to live in your life. Lots of things. The war is over. Jesus has won. But you must access it. Do you know this? And if you have already accessed it, accessed him by faith. You know, I just got to tell you something from a pastor's perspective. Can I be real with you for a minute? Let me be real with you for a minute. And I can say this because these are my kids, okay? Sometimes I worry about the worship. I go, ah, you know, I know, you know, I'm 56 years old. Is it too loud is it too soft for the young? You know, I think about these things sometimes. And today, man, you know, the drums were playing and the guitars were going. And, and I know, I, I understand. Some people prefer hymns and some people prefer contemporary. I get it. But I was thinking to myself, as a Christian, how could I stay quiet about this? Knowing what I know. I mean, I understand. There's a time to be reverent and quiet before the Lord. I understand. But David jumped and shouted, and his wife said he was nuts. And I was thinking today, praise the Lord. You know, because if it was some sort of football game or baseball game, I'd be jumping around. Why couldn't I just praise the Lord loudly, too, sometimes? And the reason I'm telling you that is not to diss the worship team. They're amazing. What I'm telling you is, I read this, you read this as a Christian, and you go, wow, that's why I get up every morning. This is what I'm doing with my life. This is what I want to do and serve because I'm a justified rece uh, receiver of righteousness, daughter or son of the king. Send me anywhere you want me to go to do whatever you want me to do, however you want me to do it. That's what this reading does for me, and I think for you. Now, I want to do one thing I've never done in my life. <laughs> but I couldn't say this any better than Alistair Begg. Alistair Begg is, a, I think he's Scottish, is my right? Scottish preacher. He actually comes to the Calvary Chapel East Coast Pastor Conference and speaks to us often. He's a pastor in Cleveland, of all places. You get this? He's in Cleveland, but he's Scottish. And I've been going through a lot of theologically, or theologically deep issues today. But I want you to see something that he says way better than I'll ever say, so I was going to show it to you. I'm going to show you a clip. And then I'm going to come back here after. That Jesus said... Without? Hold on. Jesus said, if you had faith like a child, 
perfect. So let's watch what Alistair Begg says. You might want to hit the lights too. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because I, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, uh, did you, <laughs> excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Ranger. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> you guys said I never heard of it in my life. And and what about? Let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, "The man on the middle cross said, I can come.' <laughs> now, now that's the." That is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy, while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me and as soon as you go there it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance and it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why Luther says most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense. That we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions. But we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved.
Wow. That's powerful, isn't it? Well, one other thing now, you know, when we achieve and have, or when, what he's, when we count on what he's achieved, and we now have peace with God, Philippians tells us that we can have peace that passes understanding. You get supernatural peace in your life to withstand, as we read in Romans 5, the trials and the tribulations. And what I want you to remember as we move on out of here is, if you can understand it, why you have peace, it's not supernatural. So if you're manipulating the situations and putting all your ducks in the row just so you'll feel good and be good, that's not spiritual, supernatural peace. That's you trying to make peace. And the Bible does say, as much as it's up to you, live in peace with all men, but oh, don't we want to count on the peace that passes all understanding. Now listen, as we have the worship team come back up here, (laughs) if you don't have peace with God, if you've never said to yourself, or excuse me, if you've never trusted in Christ by saying to yourself that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior, well, today's the day to do that. What do you do? You just give your life over to Jesus. And here's what I want you to do. If you're in that place, whether you're downstairs or sitting up here, if you want to be able to say to yourself, I know that I have eternal life and want to live in peace with God forever. But you're uncertain about that. I want you to come up after the service and talk with us. We'll have people up here. If you're a Christian, you've done that, but you are for lack of a better phrase, in the dumps, or need to forgive somebody, or need to extend forgiveness, or you need healed emotionally, spiritually, physically. I also want you to come up after service, and I wanna, we want to pray for you, okay? Here's what I would say, though. Listen, folks, we're going to go here in a minute, and you're welcome to stay and eat dinner, even if you didn't sign up. We'll all just eat a little less. Tell the people at the beginning to take just like this much. No, I'm kidding. But you don't want to leave here without doing business with the Lord. Why would you want to? Just to check something off the list and to say you went to an Easter service so you could be good with God? Well, Alistair Begg said it perfectly. When you say I or I say I, that's not it. It's when we're saying he, he, he. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here this morning and we're thankful (laughs) that we can have peace with you. Hostility is ended and we're at peace with you. And there's no condemnation in Christ. I mean, we walk according to the Spirit. We fulfill all the things that you've asked us. And so... Lord, I'm praying that there are people here who don't know if they're saved or have eternal life. I pray they'd come to the front after the service. There are people here who are stuck, hurting, lost, lonely. I pray they'd come up and we'd pray and talk to him. But Lord, we know you are our peace. You make all of this possible. 
And we give you all the glory today and always. In Jesus' name, amen.